Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Today we're going to be continuing in our Big Picture series and uh, where we left off in the book of Exodus. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you, if you have them with you to the book of Exodus chapter 19 and hold your place there. We'll get there in just a little bit. Uh, last week, uh, we saw what I would really consider one of the true peaks in all of the Bible take place where there's kind of like this showdown between Yahweh God and um, the false gods of the Egyptians where, where Yahweh demonstrated His uh, ultimate authority. There And the result was the freeing of his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites, from Egyptian slavery. Now today, I want to talk with you about what I see as the major theme of the second half of the book of Exodus. You may remember that what we're looking to do in this series is talk about the major message of an overall book of the Bible. And sometimes we'll be breaking these down uh, into uh, multiple sections, uh, two sections. And so last week we talked about sort of the message of the first half of the book of Exodus. And this week we'll be talking about the second, the message of the second half of the book of Exodus. And I don't know, I was talking with uh, Todd Reap before the service and was telling us that, man, preaching these messages, uh, these summary kind of messages diff- are difficult. It's a hard thing to do. And so I don't know if it's hard for you guys uh, following along on Sunday mornings, but I would encourage you to, to read ahead. Um, knowing where we're going to be next week is in Leviticus. And so go ahead and do that. That way it'll be fresh in your minds when we come. But what I believe is the major message of the second part of Exodus is that the, out, is the outward shape of an inward covenant. Think about that. The outward shape of an inward covenant. Uh, to show you more what I mean, uh, back in chapter 11, verse 7, we saw... All the plagues come through Egypt, and there was the death of the firstborn. And then we see Moses tell the people that God did all these things, uh, conquering the Egyptians and freeing His people. It says in verse 7, "...so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." Oh, my mic is down here. Wow, let's try that again. I won't start over from the beginning. I was like, why is it crinkling? Well, it's on my shirt. Hello. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate that. I'm here for humor. I, I you know, um, gracious. Okay. So the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And this distinction was supposed to be remembered every year during what they would later uh, come to call the Passover meal We saw in chapter 12, verse 27, it says, You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Right? See that distinction. And it says, And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And Zach pointed out very well last week that God made a distinction between His people and the Egyptians, that is, those, those people who were in covenant with him versus those people who were not in covenant with him. But as we follow the account of the Hebrews, uh, man, through the, the rest of the Old Testament here, and even after this exodus in Egypt or from Egypt today, we'll see that God wants his people to not only be distinguished from the Egyptians, 
but to be distinguished from all the other people from the earth. And um, it's going to, it follows then that if, if they are going to be distinguished from all the peoples of the earth, then there will be some distinguishing characteristics of these people. And they were, they were to live a certain way. Their lives were to look differently than those around them. And it seems odd to our Western ears, but if you're, if you're a note taker, you have your weekly. The first thing that you'll see is true freedom, though, results in certain duties. Now, again, it, to our Western ears, the words freedom and duties seem to not go together, right? These, these seem, it's, it's an oxymoronic thing to put those two things together. I mean, if, if we are free, what's up with all the rules, right? Like if, if God has freed us from bondage, right, and, and his people here are truly free, now suddenly they're hit with a bunch of rules in the face, um, this whole time, God is interacting with his people, mainly through Moses at Mount Sinai, is about there being a distinction. God is making a distinction between his people and not his people. He's further and further setting them apart, drawing them to himself, and that's what the laws were all about. And these laws must be good then because they are a reflection of God's heart for his people. Now, interestingly... This idea, and we're getting to our passage, I promise, but this idea about there being so many rules involved in what we would call today biblical Christianity um, is that one of the primary things that people would kind of would make, make, make people shun organized religion in general, but Christianity specifically. You've got all these rules, right? You're, you're telling me how I should live my life. And Although I would argue that every other world religion, a major philosophy, et cetera, actually is more rule-based than Christianity. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. It's for some reason that the God of the Bible is shunned because he's got all these rules, right, in, in part. Uh, again, more on that later. But God certainly did have very real rules, very real distinctives on how he was setting his people apart. This inward covenant between God and, and people would take a, a certain outward shape. So join me in Exodus 19. Let's pick up in Exodus 19, just beginning at verse 1. We'll go through verse 8 uh, for now. It says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, command, uh, my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. 
So let's, let's stop there for now. We're just going to walk through this passage a little bit because it sets the staging ground for the rest of our exploration this morning. There's the histor- historical setting there. At the beginning, they, uh, Israel has moved on from Rephidim where they fought the Amalekites and they're camped in front of Mount Sinai. This is the same place where Moses had met God in the burning bush earlier. Um, where God had promised to deliver the Israelites and called Moses to kind of lead that effort. And then God begins to instruct Moses on how to lead the people. And first he reminds them of what God has done. Moses um, uh, tells the people via God, God's words in verse 4 say, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. God seems to be reminding his people here, as far as I could tell, of his power. You you saw what I did to the Egyptians. If we recall what God did to the Egyptians, it's a powerful thing. God's reminding his people. They they had something like that had never been seen before in history and has never been seen since. God was showing his power. Then God carried them to safety. He, he protected them. He delivered them. And this wasn't anything that they could have done themselves, right? They, uh, the analogy that God uses for that deliverance is, I bore you on eagle's wings, right? They, he's saying, you guys are like the proverbial turtle on a fence post. You didn't get there by yourself, right? I, I God, he says, bore you on eagle wings. God says he is the deliverer. The, Egypt, the uh, Hebrews did not deliver themselves from Egypt. God had freed his people. And then now God was further drawing his people to himself, further making distinction between his people and not his, his people. Uh, so that's the first thing that you'll see uh, in your notes today, that God separates the people. He, says, he said there in the, in the passage, as his possession. As his possession. Now, let me, let me ask you, to be owned by someone else, does that sound like freedom to you? Probably not, right, if we're honest. To be someone else's possession. Well, what, but what if that someone else is the one true God who created the heaven and earth? I would suggest that that would be true freedom. We'll talk about that more as we go. But this sounds a lot like... Uh, what God did back when he called Abram from among the nations. If you remember, Abram was worshiping uh, pagan gods with his family, and, or at least his family was worshiping pagan gods. And God says, Abram, I'm calling you out from that situation. I'm going to provide a place to where you can worship the one true God, and your descendants will be like the stars of, of the heavens, and they too will worship the one true God. God here was bringing his people to himself. And by the way, um, God was not just delivering them so that they could from bondage so that they could go back to following their own way. Right? He's not saying, "Hey, you're free, go do whatever you want because we'll see what happens when they do what they want." Right? It's 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 a uh, a self-inflicted wounds start to happen uh with the nation of Israel. And so he's brought them to themselves and I just want to draw a um a comparison here real quickly to the relationship that you and I have if we're followers of Jesus. The same is true for us when God brings us to our senses and we realize, oh, man, I, I have been living my life in rebellion to my maker. Right? You kind of, you kind of, you wake up, you're like, I did not, I had no idea. And if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
you know what that, that, um, that light bulb moment is like. And so God doesn't give us that. Uh, that, that means um, when, when that happens, we, we have the opportunity to become positionally right with God, right? When he, he awakens something in you and he says, and, you, and then you recognize, God, I'm a sinner. I'm in trouble. <laughs> and he says, but wait, I've made the way. Right? And, then, and then he says, here's the way. His name is Jesus. And we accept the way. We're saved. That's what the, when, when Christians use the word saved, that's what we mean. We're saved from ourselves, saved from the penalty of our sins. And so he be, then begins this work of delivering us from the power that, the, that our sins and our bad choices, these ingrained things in our lives, that power that it's had over us, he begins delivering us from those sorts of things, false beliefs, patterns of sin, addictions, disorders. God begins to overturn those things, give us victory uh, over those things in our lives. And thankfully, there's nothing that he can't give us victory over, right? That means that we are, that's what we mean when we say, in a sense, we are progressively saved. It's an on work. We call that sanctification. And that word sanctification literally means being set apart. This is what you're seeing happen with the Israelites here. God has delivered them. Yes, they are free. And now he says, I want to further make you free. I want to further draw you to myself. And that's what we see in our lives as well. God doesn't just save us so we can go uh, back to serving ourselves. He saves us from ourselves for himself. Does that make sense? Um, He's made us his. We belong to him. We are his possession. Colossians 1 says it this way. He delivered us from... We sang about this this morning. We didn't talk about that. James picked out the songs this morning. He didn't know I was going to talk about this, but it fits. Uh, Colossians 1 says that God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're members of a new kingdom now, his kingdom, not our kingdom. Um, And again, so that's God's desire for us if... um, for followers of Jesus. And I would say this morning that if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's God's desire for you as well. That you may not realize that that light bulb may not have gone off in your mind yet or come on in your mind yet, but you're currently walking in a kingdom of darkness. And what God wants to do is turn the light bulb on, help you to see your situation, and transfer you from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He wants to bring you to the kingdom of Jesus. Um, The kingdom of light is where Jesus is our king. He is our ruler. He's our master. He is our owner, as difficult as that sounds, again, to our Western ears. This is because he is the light, right? He is the light. The light shines in our darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is delivering us to bring us to himself. And by the way, uh, just just a quick note, if, if you have been searching for your own inner light or someone is, is directing you toward something that has been labeled the light, but that thing directs you away from Jesus, the true light, then that thing is actually leading you into the kingdom of darkness. And so God is calling us out of the kingdom of darkness. This gets us to the meat of what I mentioned in the beginning, the kingdom of light, our freedom, is where we are not the king. Now, again, this may sound like the antithesis of freedom. Freedom's where I'm the king. Freedom's where I can do whatever I want. No, no, no. Freedom is where God reigns. So let, let, let's keep reading. Much like you, um, 
when we've been uh, newly delivered from patterns of sin or brokenness in our lives, look what the, the Israelites do, verse 8. The people say, we will do. We will, we will follow you, God. They've been newly delivered out of Egyptian slavery. They're like, God, you are amazing. I will follow you, right? And, and we've, we've done this, right? This is like a Jesus take the wheel sort of moment right here. Uh, you know what it's like. You've made a mess of things in your life. You, you may um, find yourself in a low place, maybe in the bathroom floor, hugging a trash can. God, if you'll get me out of this situation, right? I, I'll serve you. If, you. if you'll get me out of this, I'll serve you. Yeah, have you ever been there? Do you know people who have been there, right? God, I'll serve you. Just, just, just get me out of here, and, and I, I promise, I promise I'll get serious. I'll, I'll start following you. Um, well, if, if we've prayed that prayer and then gone our own direction, once God makes everything okay, then we're a lot like the Israel, our spiritual forefathers here, uh, our, our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites. Um, they make a commitment to do what the Lord says. Now, if you read ahead, uh, and unfortunately, in about six weeks, they'll be having a lewd debauched, idolatrous party before a golden calf that they have made with their own hands so they could worship it in about six weeks after they said, Lord, all that you've commanded, we will do. We may be quick to judge them, but let let the word of God be a mirror to us. We we know that's us as well. We know that that's our heart as well. Um, Man, have have you ever doubted human depravity? Look, look, look at this, and, and, and look at this, <laughs> right? Um, again, the people had witnessed things that had never before been seen in all the earth and had not been seen since. Again, for that matter, we can look at our own hearts and remember how quickly we turn from God. It's almost as if, it's almost as if we, we either love the misery that our sin patterns bring us, or we don't love God enough to want to live for Him once He delivers us. You know, going back to our discussion from Genesis part two, it's like we want a contract with God, but we don't want a covenant with God. We want to sign a contract with God, God deliver me from this, these things. You know, we want the benefits of God, but we don't want God. And you can tell here that God wants a covenant with us where he is ours and we are his because we remember that covenants are sealed with a ceremony. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. It says, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And that word consecrate is not something we tend to use in everyday language. It, it means to to sanctify, to prepare, to dedicate, to make holy, to separate, to to set apart. The people are consecrated, set apart for God for the next two days through a ritualistic cleansing, right? They were supposed to wash their clothes. This was a symbolic act that uh, of their inner character being washed. Um, three days of celibacy was so that they were to deny their flesh and be set apart for God. Um, God setting, again, these people apart for himself. Again, um, we're, 
these are the people that we just talked about will soon be in this idolatrous act before the golden calf. So this is a true, and, and if you know your Bibles, you know that this kind of thing of rebelling against God and leaving God and worshiping false idols and doing all kinds of moral evil is a, going to be an ongoing pattern in the life of the Israelites. Now, if you know that, then you know then how gracious this is of God to, to, to uh, enact this covenant with them right now. God is absolutely holy and just and good. He's the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth, and he is graciously making these people his people. It's amazing. Now, the people have to remember, though, God is gracious, but he's also holy. That's the next thing you'll see in your outline. God is holy. This is another thing that's uncomfortable to our squishy Western ears, but Moses is to remind the people that God is to be feared. I know that's an uncomfortable. I know that's uncomfortable. It reminds me, though, of that famous conversation that I've shared in here before uh, from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Susan Pevensey was talking to Mr. Beaver. And you may know that the kingly lion Aslan of Narnia is meant to represent or give insight into the person of God, particularly Jesus. And in the conversation, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Right, well, because God isn't safe, God warns the people repeatedly. He warns them. Uh, first here, in beginning in verse 12, check it out, 12 to 15, he says, And you shall set limits for all the people around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated, that word again, consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. This, has to, this had to be a really frightening thing if you were there on the ground because we know that it was because every Israelite throughout all of history from that day forward was supposed to remember that moment as a watershed in their history. Moses reminds them about it in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, he says this, Tell your children how on that day that you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the day days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament references this in chapter 12. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Again, so before the Israelites can meet with God, they need to have an appropriate sense of fear and reverence and gratitude and awe of God. So I just want to stop and ask a question this morning. Do you fear God? That's a controversial question, isn't it? That, particularly in America, man, like we, we don't fear anything, right? Like, we, we are ram trucks and, uh, and whatever. Um, do you fear God? I, I, I have to confess, there are times when I do fear God, but there are times when I don't. How foolish of me. Listen, uh, we don't meet God as equals. He is our superior. He's the king, I tell you, right? He's the king. In the book of Hebrews, we're told, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, I heard a, uh, somebody say one time that the smoke and lightning on the top of Mount Sinai were not so the Israelites could enjoy the show. It's making a point. God is making a point. One of the all-time great theologians, A.W. Tozer, writes it. This I, I couldn't word it any better, so I'm just going to quote A.W. Tozer. He says, No one can know the true grace of God who has not first known the fear of God. It seems to me that we have lost some of that reverential fear. Sometimes we are overly and inappropriately familiar with the Almighty. Sometimes we relate to God as the great gift giver in the sky. And when we do this, we diminish who he is. Before we meet with God, we must remind ourselves that we are about to meet with God. Right? So God is holy. We are sinners in need of mercy. He is all-powerful. We are weak. He is all-wise. He sees all. We think we're wise, but we can only see the present, right? He is the creator. We are the created. He is the standard by which we even measure what good and evil are. He is the standard that we measure our lives by. He is not defined by us. We are defined by him. And these, again, these are hard truths, man, um, that sometimes prevent us from accepting God's claims on our lives to begin with, even if sort of uh, implicitly or subconsciously or tacitly in our minds on a practical level, if we're honest with ourselves, we actually want to be our own gods, and so we refuse to worship the one true God who's actually there. So God is indeed to be feared, um, but I want to encourage you. (laughs) Jesus made a way so that the God who is to be feared calls us sons and daughters. We will talk more about that at the end. It's truly amazing news. Well, Pastor James likes to remind us uh, we're forgetful people. Um, Well, so were the Israelites. 
Uh, just to make note, uh, God warns the Israelites again. I told you he warns them repeatedly at the end of chapter 19. Um, he says, do not come up to the mountain. Do not approach the presence of God, lest God break out against them. Can you imagine anything more horrifying than God himself breaking out against you? you know, it's funny, though, how God knows our hearts more than we do. And uh, he knows that we... He knew that these people were spiritually hard of hearing. He knows that we are hard of hearing. He knows that these people don't properly fear him. So in his mercy, he warns them over and over so that they don't make the grave mistake of approaching him inappropriately and bear the, the again, grave consequences. You know, just in my life, I find that God's always been faithful to me before I take off in some wacko, crazy direction. He usually sends me a warning. Um, have you ever experienced that? Maybe, maybe you're about to make some sort of decision. You get like a gut check. Call it maybe sometimes it's a God check, or you're you're speaking to a, a friend, godly friend, who who knows the scriptures, and they give you some wise counsel, and you're like, "That's probably right." Um, I know you're telling me not to go into that situation or that relationship or make that decision. I kind of know that's from God. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> right? Have you ever done that? Don't, don't be pig-headed like me. Okay, don't, don't do that. I want to encourage you. If God warns us, it's because he loves you. He warns us because he wants a relationship with you, and he wants to protect you. Right? So God wants to set these people apart as his covenant possession. He wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people um, he doesn't want us to forget who God is, though. He's completely and utterly holy. Therefore, relationship with him looks a certain way. So God gives them duties. That's the way to real, the real freedom. True freedom, if you're following along in your, in your weekly, looks like God's law. What? <laughs> you may say, yes. The Israelites were no longer in slavery, but hear me. So they didn't fall into spiritual slavery. God lovingly, out of his kindness, gives them what we call the Ten Commandments. Um, we tend to think, again, that word commandment. You're commanding me. Yes, God is giving commandments. This sounds like the opposite of freedom to us, but this is freedom. I'm just going to walk through them beginning in the uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, it's there at the beginning of the chapter. I'm just going to walk through them really quickly. I want to refer you to our series through Exodus where we go through these in more detail, but I'm just going to hit them like a list. And as we go through, I just want to, in your mind, have you think about three things. Since these are God's rules, what do these rules tell us about God? This is not in your outline, but you can maybe think about these. Number one, if these are God's rules, what do they tell us about God? Number two, what do individual lives, communities, and nations look like who follow these rules versus those who don't? And then, on a personal level, how are you doing at keeping these rules as the moral groundwork of your covenant with God? I'm just going to read them, okay? Just, just list them off. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Um, we, can, we can unpack that, um, but this is essentially God saying, no other gods, not like in, even in addition to me, but no other gods before my face. I don't want to see them. No other gods. Um, 
He said, then it follows you shouldn't make an idol, no idol for yourselves. In other words, worshiping some part of the creation rather than the creator or making an idea of God in your mind that looks like you want God to look so you can worship that is a little bit easier than the real God. That would be an idol. He says you shouldn't take his name in vain. Again, there's a lot to this one, but essentially it means don't take his name lightly. Don't call him Lord out of your mouth and deny him with your life. Don't take his name uh, crassly. Don't speak his name lightly. Uh, Remember the Sabbath day. Again, we can unpack a lot about that, but essentially it's about rest. Resting in the Lord physically, but also resting in the Lord spiritually. He is my righteousness. Just, Just throw it out there. How are you resting? How are you doing at resting in the Lord? It's actually part of the covenant that God made for you. It's for your good. He says, honor your father and mother. That can be really tough because parents can be flaky. They may be not followers of God. They may have little to no wisdom, but God would say you're called to honor their position, respect them, pray for them. Um, You can honor a person's position even if they're not an honorable person. Um, you don't obey them when they ask you to disobey God, but we honor them in their God-given position. Uh, you shall not murder. This, we sound good on that one, right? Hopefully in here. We're good on that one. Jesus kind of ratcheted up the stakes on that because he revealed in the New Testament that if you hate someone, you're murdering them in your heart. Ooh, that's, that's a little different. Uh, a little more. Another one, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, again, hopefully most of us will say, I'm good. But again, Jesus revealed the heart of that when he said, if you've looked with lust, you've committed adultery. And then all of us said, we're guilty. All of us said, we're good. These, these two commandments are getting more difficult all the time. How are we doing so far? Anybody unscathed? I'm not. Um, he says, you shouldn't steal. We, we like to put dollar amounts on that. Um, God doesn't. Uh, you shall not bear false witness. You know, intentionally lying about somebody else may they get you. It may get you out of a jam, uh, but God detests that sort of thing. Uh, you shall not covenant, covet, wanting something that's not yours. I heard an old saying that says um, the only time you should look into your neighbor's bowl is not to see if they got more than you, but just to make sure that they have enough. All right? Don't don't. Don't covet what's not yours. Uh, And again, uh, think about how wise these are. Again, since these are God's rules, what do they tell us about God? What do individual lives, communities, and nations look like who follow these rules versus those who don't? And how are you doing at keeping these rules as the moral groundwork of your covenant? And, you know, to be honest, Jesus boiled all these down into two, didn't he? What's the greatest commandment? The second one's like it. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing at that one? Do you always love God as God deserves to be? I, I don't. Do you always love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? I don't. But the point and the purpose of these commandments is not to make us perfect. The whole idea was to show us the perfection of these laws so that they make us cry out to God for His mercy. Um, Jesus, again, who did keep these, paid the penalty for us not keeping them. Uh, So then, out of that, we seek to live a moral life. Well, I won't get into it today, but uh, chapters 21 to 24 give like 613 different rules. Um, I would would encourage you to read those. Um, 
and again, I would refer you to our Exodus study, but for our purposes today, I just want to point out something really crucial here. Did you notice that God issued his laws for the nation of Israel after he had already redeemed them? Catch that. God made the covenant with his people before he gave them the laws. You know what that means? Do the math. Do the spiritual math in your, in your mind. They were not in covenant because they kept the laws. They were given the laws because they were in covenant. Right? These laws were a sign that they belonged to God. They were outer signs of an inward covenant. And we need to listen to the law of God, not so that we can get to heaven, but that we can know how to live properly here on the earth until we get there. I just want to close with a couple of quotes here. There's a difficult concept. So I thought Jerry Bridges, the author of a book called Pursuit of Holiness, which is fantastic, by the way, he says it this way. Some people believe that under grace, we have been freed not only from the curse and condemnation resulting from breaking the law, but also from the requirements of the law as a rule of life. They believe that to insist on obedience as a requirement for a Christian is to teach legalism instead of grace. I believe such a view is a misunderstanding of grace. God's grace does not change the fundamental character of God's moral law. Legalism is to seek justification and good standing with God through the merit of works in obedience to the law instead of by faith in Christ. The fundamental character of God's law has not changed. What has changed is our reason for obedience. Get this last sentence. Under grace, obedience is a loving response to salvation already provided in Christ. You know, if we want to know how to please God with our life, read His law. If we want to know, uh, live life that brings God's blessings, follow that law. But if we want to get to heaven, we have to trust His grace, right? Grace and law are not incompatible. They, they They go hand in hand. They are the outward shape of an inward covenant. Well, this is the conclusion of the book of Exodus. What, what can we say about it? In the first part, we saw that God has a plan. We're part of his plan. We get to choose either the path of humility or the path of arrogance and either end up on one side or the other of God's plan, right? Uh, Then today we saw that just as humility before God leads to freedom, true freedom looks a certain way. Um, The covenant-making God calls us to live differently from the world around us. He's setting us apart. I believe that if you looked at The whole book of Exodus, though, there's one unifying theme time and time again in Exodus. God is interacting with his enemies like Pharaoh and his people to show that he alone is God. I think that is the overall theme of the book of Exodus. Just a a note in chapter 18, uh, Moses is recounting God's works to his father-in-law, Jethro. Jethro says this, Praise be to the Lord who rescued from the, you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now, Pastor Mark Dever says it this way. That is the message of Exodus. The Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all other gods. God worked sovereignly to save a special group of people so that 
uh, we would behold his greatness. He is not just another projection of human hopes or philosophical ideas. God acted in time and space so we could see his power and worship his majesty. That is the message of the book of Exodus. And so I would just encourage you today that that's still going on. God is still saving a people for himself. He's acting right now in time and space and history, drawing you. You're not here by mistake. You're not breathing right now by mistake. God wants you to know him. Listen, if you're part of God's covenant through Jesus, I want you to spend a moment just just thanking him right now for his kindness to us. If you haven't turned to Jesus as your Savior and thus are not part of God's covenant family, man, let's talk. Let's talk more. Uh, you're, you're missing out on what you were, you were made for. Um, this turns us to a thing that we call the Lord's Supper. And if there's something that we've learned this morning, it's that the law, yes, it reflects the heart of God, but it is a brutal master. If you're trying to live a life and so micromanage your life that you live perfectly according to God's law, and that's what you're basing, here's the key, that's what you're basing your righteousness in, it's going to drive you crazy. It's impossible to do. But the reason that we remember Jesus and drink this juice and eat this bread every week is because Jesus actually did keep all the law. The reason he's able to do that is because he is God in the flesh, lived a perfect life that we could never live. He kept the law. The great news is that the law keeper Jesus, the righteous one, offers to make a life exchange with us. That's what the whole crucifixion thing was about. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. And it cost him his life. He took, because breaking God's law, because God is the giver of life, separation from God, which is what happens when we break his law, results in death. Physical death and spiritual death. Jesus paid the death penalty for us. And so when we come forward each Sunday morning and take this cup and this bread, take it back to our seat, you know what we're doing? We're bowing the knee afresh. Jesus, you, you, you took my penalty. <laughs> you are God. I want to worship you and, and, and not worship me. You are worthy. You alone are worthy. And so I would encourage you, man, if you're in covenant, Jesus called this the new covenant in his blood. If you're in covenant with God through Jesus, I would invite you to come remember this this morning. Take it back to your seat. Spend some time in prayer. If you're not in covenant with God through Jesus, I would encourage you to hang out in your seat. This is kind of a holy thing for us. Um, so we just ask you to, to be silent. Nobody's going to judge you. That's not what we do here. We, we're not the judge. Um, but I would, I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer. When you're ready, come take the bread and the cup and remember Jesus.